Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And our special guest, outgoing Mumbrella CEO and co-founder, Martin Lane. Hello. This week, we'll be talking about reporting season reveals how Nine and Prime are really performing, WPP restructures under new leader Jens Monsees, and Think TV and News Media Works merge. But first, Martin, it is your glorious return to the Mumbrella cast, and I can't help but feel you're doing it right at the last minute before you leave us. Well, that's because you invited me right at the last <laughs> minute before I left you. I have been on once before. I was waiting for my second invite, but here it is. So tell us, firstly, why are you leaving Mumbrella? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get straight into it then, shall we? Oh, look, I think when, when Tim and I sold the business two years ago, I kind of had it in my head that um, I wouldn't be likely to want to do the same thing that I've been doing for the last 11 years, um, only for somebody else. Um, the first year with our new owners diversified, actually, I, you know, I liked them. They were very supportive and we did sort of look at whether there are other options or something that I might be able to do. Um, but really a couple of things for personal reasons. I need to spend some time back in the UK this year. And secondly, I feel like I am, um, like I said, I've been doing this for 11 years. I, I built a kind of travel trade business before that and sold it and built a media business and sold that so it feels like I've probably got one more in me I'm gonna go and do that so plans to build and sell again third time around Uh, I think if you build in order to sell you're in trouble I think you just build in order to build and then if you sell it it's nice so 11 years with umbrella yes what is the best decision and the worst decision you've made in that time? Oh, hiring you, obviously. <laughs> Do you know what? That's I was up there. As best or worst? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I was going to issue the caveat that you're not allowed to say the worst decision was hiring me. Oh, okay, okay. All right, well, I'll take that back then. <laughs> um, uh, difficult, really. I, I guess the, the best decision um, – Maybe not the best decision, but the the most significant decision would have been launching Umbrella 360. Um, You know, that kind of changed the game, I think, for the industry in terms of the quality of of content at conferences, but also for us as a business, we kind of, I still can't believe that we did it with eight people. Um, But that was what took us from eight people to 16 people and then allowed us to scale from there. So I'd say that was probably the biggest single thing that had 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 the biggest impact on the business and the worst decision oh god it's funny isn't it because you know I like to think that we're a very successful business but it's so much easier to think about the worst decisions than the the best decisions um uh buying a magazine about film in the middle of a kind of film downturn in Australia <laughs> just as magazine publishing was starting to come off or was well off um deciding that the way to do that was to launch a monthly tablet edition watching that fail and then going weekly those 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 two kind of sort of you know are up there um yeah pr- probably you know I, look, I, th- I think we've probably made plenty of bad decisions um but we've got the big ones right and you kind of learn along the way you know I think you learn more from the mistakes you make than the things you get right anyway so that's all good and how did you find the sale process back in 2017 oh look it it was it was stressful I mean I've never done anything on that scale before as I say I've sold a business before but it was a lot smaller and a lot more straightforward so so it was um yeah it wasn't it wasn't um, an easy process from the point of view of having to make sure you've got all of you know your stuff ready for due diligence and and, and all of that. So it was hard work, um, but you know it was interesting and exciting, and I learned a lot. Um, and we got a good outcome in terms of the business that we chose to sell into, which I think was the most important thing for us in terms of diversified's commitment to our editorial integrity and to the people and all those things. I know it sounds cheesy, but it's true. Um, and when I think about some of the businesses we could have sold to, you know, we definitely didn't want to choose a partner who's just going to asset strip and then flip it in three years' time. We wanted 
a company that was going to invest in the future growth of the business, and they've been true to their word on that. So, so yeah, it was it it wasn't it wasn't the uh, easiest twelve months I've had, but you know. And do you remember that Friday back in December twenty seventeen, the last working day of the year, when you announced to us that that's where you'd been in all these mysterious meetings? I remember the beginning of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I remember the end. Um, yes, I do. Yeah. Um, So we uh, very sort of obviously there was all this actual champagne set up in the boardroom. Do you mean mean real champagne as opposed to the cheap stuff I used (laughs) to buy? So so we knew something was up because uh, someone had actually splurged on champagne from champagne (laughs) and we'd all been told, you know, we couldn't go to any events or go home early on this Friday. We all had to be there. And Tim and Martin just kept not showing up and people, people were going pretty feral wanting to pop pop the champagne and then we're being told, no, you can't. Oh, why not? Oh, because there's going to be some announcement. So needless to say, by the time you did roll in, we had sort of worked it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should, so I should hope. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it, I, 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 won't, um, I won't embarrass the person who <laughs> involved really, but, but um, there was somebody involved in that process who hadn't quite ticked all the boxes they needed to tick in order to get a signature on a form which uh, I took well, as you can imagine. <laughs> yes, um, So, so we were we were somewhat delayed, um, and a couple of hours later, we 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 finally arrived to let everybody know what, know what they'd worked out already. I was really nervous about that. Actually. You was, were. Yeah. I can remember you came in to um, give the speech, and you had a piece of paper, and very unlike you, your your hand was shaking. Yeah, I don't know why. I your think voice it was, was a little bit shaky yes, as well. Maybe it was just adrenaline. Whereas um, the rest of us were like, oh, we just want to have the champagne. Yeah, I needed, I needed a drink. <laughs> We've already worked. We've already worked this out. That's, that's the truth. But yeah, look, I, I think the thing is when you when you go through something like that, the the most important thing is you want to try and look after all of the people. And um, as I say, it was really important to us during the negotiations that we got some guarantees from our potential buyers about that. So yeah, it just felt like an important thing to reassure people that it wasn't going to impact their jobs and that um, you know it was going to be business as usual and all of those things. But um, yeah, it was. Yeah, I was strangely nervous. I don't usually get nervous about things like that. And what are you going to miss about Umbrella <laughs> when you're not here, aside from me? Uh, well, you've already taken one of my answers. Um, I, I think, to be honest, the, the the things that I've done in my career that I've enjoyed the most have just been when I've had a good group of people around me and had a laugh. I mean, I know that sounds really trite, but you know, I think. You hope that you're going to hire good people. You hope that you've got a good product. You hope that you're going to build a good business. Um, but actually, if you're surrounded by a bunch of people who make you miserable, then all of that counts for nothing. So so I think it's probably the people and the banter more than anything else. Um, I'm not very good at being on my own, so I will definitely need to get some people around me. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think that just that kind of day-to-day kind of, you know, banter and and spending time with good teams I kind of that's what I enjoy so I'll be doing more of that so Martin Lane in a a year's time is he just going to be sitting at home bantering with himself (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no that would be sad wouldn't it no no I hope I've found some victims to sit and uh, as anyone who knows me I, I tend to just I just like people to sit and listen really. I just need an audience. I'm not I'm not bothered whether they engage particularly, <laughs> but if I can find my wife calls me radio bullshit. It's nice to have oh. me on in the background, but she doesn't necessarily <laughs> need to listen to me all the time. Um but yeah, now I, I in a year's time I'll take a bit of a break, come back, um, get into some new stuff that's exciting and not in media and marketing. I want to try and do something different and uh and move on to, to to some other industry sectors and um and go from there. But yeah, I'll definitely I definitely won't be on my own. God, I hope not. Imagine it. So I will be talking to myself. <laughs> so you've already done this twice and are planning to do it a third time, hopefully. <laughs> what tips would you offer to anyone else setting up their own business? Oh, I think look, I, the hardest thing for me was, you know, the, the the time of life I was I was at. I had a couple of young kids. Um, I had, you know, a mortgage. I had some financial commitments. So it's it, it's really difficult to to fund it. That's that's the hardest thing. I think most people don't set up their own businesses who want to don't do it because they need a, a salary and an income. Um, so the the first thing is you got to find a way of solving that problem, however that is, whether that's you know 
going into partnership with someone who's got some money or whether it's doing it off the side of a desk or doing it at the weekends or, or, or whatever. I think that that's the, the single thing you've got to solve for if you've got to pay rent or pay a mortgage or, or whatever it is. Um, and then I think the next thing is, um, it is try, you know, it's easy to say, but try and do something that um, you really, that doesn't feel like work. Um, and I think that's probably something that, that you know, we, we definitely started with, you know, a passion around what we wanted to do and it didn't feel like coming into the office every day. Now you can't sustain that. Eventually it becomes like anything else, you know, it's a day job and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I, I find myself getting really, really excited about, about, about a couple of things that I've, I've got kind of bubbling along and, and getting that sort of feeling of starting again and, and, you know, doing it because you want to do it. And then you don't care if you're, you know, up at one o'clock in the morning, putting something on the website because it's what you want to do rather than what you're paid to do as a job. So yeah, find something you love, find people that you enjoy working with. That's the most important thing and try and find a way of funding it so you don't go broke. <laughs> and what about if we look at the industry over your time in it, the media and marketing industry, what have been some of the biggest changes you've seen over the last 10 years? Um, look, I, th- I think for us, um, so I'll I sort of answer that in two ways. From a, from a publisher point of view, you know, we had a bit of a clear run when we, when we launched. You know, there was B&T and Ad News, both of whom were kind of, you know, legacy print businesses. They had some digital, but they didn't really, apart from awards, they weren't really doing conferences. Um, and, you know, we were able to launch a free job board and kind of kill their kill their job rep, job revenue. You know, there, there were a few things that we were able to do as a kind of, you know, startup that, that made it relatively easy for us to get traction early on. So I think it's a lot more crowded now. There's a, you know, gen- not just in media marketing, but but generally, you know, you kind of, you get an idea, as I know to my cost in the last few months when I've been thinking of ideas that, you know, there's somebody publishing something somewhere because the barriers to entry have come down so much. Um, so, so I think that's probably, with my publisher hat on, that's probably the single biggest change that, that you know, everyone in theory can be a publisher. Um and then in terms of the industry itself, um, I mean, it's interesting, really. I, th- I think about where we kind of get our money from, you know, in terms of advertising and sponsorship. It's still, you know, the big media owners and the tech companies. That that hasn't really – it has shifted a little bit, but not as much as you would have expected given what's happened in the industry. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the other thing that's interesting to me is, you know, we, we built a business which was based on a community which was – talking to each other on Mumbrella on the comment thread initially and then out of that built an event business which was those people then coming together face to face and that still feels like the model really um you know I I think more recently subscriptions have obviously taken off in a way that we wouldn't have expected you know three or four years ago um uh and I think the industry I don't know I don't hesitate to say this but it's probably behaving a little bit better than it did 10 years ago uh, Viv's just looked up at that point. She was on her phone. <laughs> just, just listeners. She was on her phone, and I said that, and she's looked up and glared at me. Now I'm scared. I didn't glare. It's just that you finally captured my interest. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. There's been a, a few publishers in recent years which have sold. So we obviously sold to Diversified Communications. Junkie sold to Outdoor Business O Media. Pedestrian sold to Nine, and Your Life Choices recently sold to Compare Club. So it doesn't seem to be a sort of cut and dry case of publisher buying publisher. You know, there's a comparison website that bought Your Life Choices. We were bought by a sort of events and exhibitions and trade show company. So when you went out to to sell Mumbrella. What sort of businesses were you scoping out? Because it obviously wasn't just, you know, you weren't just going out and pitching yourself to, to Nine or somebody like that or Bauer Media or, or a traditional publisher. You obviously put the net a bit wider. No, it's a really interesting question actually because I think when, when certainly in our case, we started with the thought that it would be a media owner, maybe a kind of, you know, one of the trade media owners. I mean, back in the day, we just always assumed that we'd sell to Haymarket, you know, before Haymarket exited Australia. That wasn't a great day for us because <laughs> um, there goes them. But um, so, yeah, that, that 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 was how we kind of thought about it back in the early, back in the probably before we even actually 
started to go through the process. And then once we went through the process, about half of the businesses that were interested um, were exhibition and event businesses, and the other half were publishers, either large publishers or trade publishers, which we hadn't really seen coming. So, so that was kind of the you know inevitably, I guess, sixty percent of our revenues come from events. So I guess we should have predicted it, but we we didn't quite see the balance being the way it was. And then, as you say, you look at all those other businesses that are selling to all sorts of weird and wonderful people. So I think I think it's a really good opportunity for publishers to um you know to diversify the revenue streams and look beyond you know getting bought out by their nearest competitor or somebody who's bigger than them and just wants to get you know a stronger foothold in the space so from a from a kind of um potential sale point of view i think that's really interesting but as i said before i just you know i'm thinking about what i'm talking to the the m&a guy um per lundgren who who helped us with our sale um recently and he was sort of saying that you know he he's he's businesses that are purely based on display advertising obviously are not ticking boxes at the moment subscription services event businesses those sorts of things so i think even more than ever it's important that publishers um diversify their their um their revenue streams as much as possible and the more you do that the more likely you're you're likely to get a buyer that you didn't see coming and didn't expect but but don't start there because if you start there you you find yourself not having much fun and just concentrating on the exit and that's not the way to go, I don't think. And beyond the final few days of getting the sale across the line when you were waiting for various people to tick various boxes, do you have a most stressful day at Mumbrella that you can recall? Oh, wow. Um, a most stressful day at Mumbrella. Um, yes, I do. I have to be careful how I talk about <laughs> it. Um are we going to need to get this podcast legal? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I'm leaving. So, um, no, I, there was a moment we, we had a, back in the early days, we had an overdraft facility. Um, and, um, that overdraft facility, um, wasn't available to us one day and we hadn't realized. So literally we kind of went very close to having nothing in the bank. Um, that was fairly stressful. I mean, it was fine, you know, we kind of worked it out and talked to the bank and everything was good. But that moment, I, I think the biggest thing for me when you're running your own business versus now where, you know, it's all about the P&L again, is it's all the cash flow. So what you're worried about every month is, is there enough money in the bank to pay to pay the bills? And in the early days, you know, we went we went close to there not being and that's that's not a great place to be. And, you know, there were times when we didn't pay ourselves and all the things that, that you do as a startup founder um so yeah that was that was probably up there and 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 you know you you have a responsibility at that point to the people that you're working with who have got you know mortgages and rent to pay and all of those things so that responsibility weighs pretty heavily so yeah 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 the day we suddenly realized our overdraft facility wasn't there anymore was was not a great day (laughs) all right well should we get into hearing your thoughts on this week's news absolutely i'm well researched as you know (laughs) So it's been a big week in reporting season with four of the big media companies dropping their results. Let's start with HT&E or Here, There and Everywhere who reported their full calendar year results with revenue dropping 7% to $252.7 million. HT&E is the parent company of Radio Business ARN or Australian Radio Network, which includes the likes of KISS and the Gold Network and Agency Emotive. But they have sold a significant number of businesses over the past couple of years, including The Raw, which it sold to Athletes Voice, and has closed others, including Gfinity Esports, which shuttered in August. Hannah, one thing that we often talk about with HT&E or here, there and everywhere uh, is they're not really here, there and everywhere. No. And when I was writing uh, the script, a step behind the scenes for you, (laughs) I did have to ask you what else they own other than ARN, which is the one that we always think about. But when I remember when they, I think it was when they, close Gfinity they said they were going to focus on being an audio business and we thought right that's emotive is going to go because obviously it's an agency not an audio business but it's still there um but primarily it is really just ARN which has the iHeartRadio business and 
as you said, those big radio stations that are doing as well as can be expected given the environment. So they had to rebrand it a number of years ago because there was so much market confusion between APN Outdoor and APN News and Media and the various splits of who owned what businesses. And I think they called themselves here, there and everywhere because they were a radio business. They did have an agency. They had AdShell, which is an outdoor street furniture business, but they've since sold that off to Omedia and their CEO, Kieran Davis, has spent a lot of time repositioning them as an audio business and really streamlining that and making it about sort of being a comprehensive audio offering. It is worth noting that they have been very clear that when they did a review of their non-audio investments, they have decided that they are keeping emotive and they had a little chart in their results sort of showing what they're going to offload and what they're going to keep. And they're very firm that emotive is still part of the HT and E family. So I guess we'll have to see. Uh, They say it still fits and there's still a lot of synergies there with being able to create content and whatnot. But primarily, yeah, they're, they're audio rather than you know, a multifaceted here, there and everywhere business. Martin, when you look at reports like these, how glad are you that you weren't running a publicly listed company? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I always think, you know, I was looking at, you know, there's been a lot of results this week and I was looking at the comment thread and, and various CEOs getting hammered for buzzword bingo and all those sorts of things. And I just think, yeah, it must be so difficult that you've got you've got um, you know that audience of shareholders that you've got to you've got to satisfy. You've got you've got the investment community. You've got you've got journalists on the phone. You've got all of those people, and you're trying to spin something really, whichever way you look at it. Whether the results are good or bad, you're trying to make sure that the story is the story you want to get out there. Um, and then there's people on Umbrella hammering you for using <laughs> using the odd cliche. So it, it's not something I've ever done. It's not something I'm ever going to do. And it's not something I've ever wanted to do. Yeah, I spoke to the CEO of 10, Paul Anderson, I think last week. And 10 used to be an ASX listed company, but since it's been bought by CBS, it's not. And I said a similar thing to him, like, how glad are you that you don't have to release those figures anymore? And that if people ask you about your financials, you're not legally obligated to report certain things and look he didn't want to say too much on the record but I can tell you that his face indicated he's very pleased (laughs) (laughs) that he no longer has to do that. Interestingly in these results Kieran Davis the CEO was talking to investors afterwards and was very much saying that this is a cyclical decline in terms of their revenues and in terms of the headwinds that they're facing. He was absolutely adamant that it wasn't a structural decline that, for example, newspapers is facing. He was saying, no, this is cyclical and given the cycle, we are doing okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we saw SCA CEO Grant Blackley say the same thing, obviously also a radio business. So the word cyclicals had a bit of a run this reporting season. I think one of the struggles that HT&E is currently facing, if we look in the results, they spent $4.8 million on redundancies and listed a $13.4 million loss on the sale of Unbound and $1.5 million on the sale of The Raw. Those are some big numbers to have to write down in your reporting. And I think especially when even the better parts of your business are underperforming, that hits your bottom line pretty hard. So I think once they've kind of gone through this change where they're getting rid of these businesses that aren't doing so well for them, their results should start looking a lot better and probably it'll be a bit of an easier run for them after that. And another company that cited the challenging media market was Omedia, which is an outdoor business but also owns publisher Junkie. Now, their profit dropped 23%, but again, they were keen to position themselves as having had a better run than might be expected in this market. And they particularly had a stronger run towards the end of the reporting season rather than at the beginning, uh, Omedia is about to lose its CEO, Brendan Cook, who is often cited as being one of the nicest guys in media owner land, but it's not yet clear when he's leaving. So I had a chat to him on the phone and he said he's going to stick around until they've absolutely found the right candidate 
to succeed him. Martin, I know you just said you don't want to run a publicly listed company, <laughs> but could you be the man for the job? Oh, God, no. Tony Four would be my, my <laughs> boss and, uh, and and love Tony as I do. I, I don't fancy having Tony as a boss. Um, no, like, I thought it was it was quite an interesting, um, you know, the, the, the looking at what happened in the last quarter, it looks like they've kind of got back on track. There's no doubt it was a really difficult year last year so so Brendan kind of maybe not going out just yet but certainly going out on on a semi high I guess you'd say <laughs> um and just the other thing about commute and you know the former ad shell business being being looking like that's worked from an integration point yeah I mean it it's now their biggest segment it it performed really well and I spoke to Brendan after the results and sort of said you know why do you think that succeeded? And he was really transparent that they have had to pull millions of dollars of costs out of the business and that that is difficult because it does involve letting people go. But he was just really big on the culture of the businesses and making sure that they got that right before they sort of tried to go too hard and fast on on the growth aspect of it, I guess. Yeah, I think um, if you look at O's um, results, the first half of the calendar year, they saw a 94.4% slide in profits, which is quite dire. But overall, that improved a lot. So they must have done, been doing really well towards the end of the year or as well as you can expect. Obviously, they're also, you know, stating that it's a tough market. Um, I think what was kind of interesting to me is there wasn't really a shout out to Junkie in there at all. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, there was some sort of write-down of costs, $1.5 million, I believe. Yeah, there, there was a write-down to do with uh, Junkie not meeting its revenue targets and sort of then, you know, all sorts of fancy accounting things. I did try to get <laughs> Brendan to explain it to me and he made it clear that he's not the accountant but sort of did his best to explain it to me but I'm not going to try and repeat it because I'll definitely get it wrong. I, I did ask him directly though, are you happy with how Junkie is performing? And he was adamant that he is happy with how it's performing and that they didn't just buy Junkie as a sort of junkie.com.au. They bought the creativity, they bought their ability to integrate sponsored content and to work with brands and to reach younger audiences with the different ways that they create branded content. So it's sort of, to his mind, not as simple as, you know, how much revenue is Junkie pulling in right now or how many eyeballs are on punky.com.au right now, but much more about how they can use O-Media's assets and Junkie's media expertise and branding expertise to sort of be more collaborative and do something a bit different. And I think if we, as we spoke about a couple of uh, weeks ago on the podcast, Junkie obviously just picked up the social account for Netflix ANZ, which is a massive win for them. So obviously they're doing something right in terms of branded content. Um, also interesting, I think O-Media were the ones who kind of spoke out the strongest about what they're expecting for the next, say, 12 months. They've said that they're expecting out of home will gain market share against other media formats. And they've released a guidance, which is fairly in line with what they've just delivered, actually. So long term, a little bit of growth, obviously not a quick recovery. But I think they were one of the only ones who kind of said, yep, we're expecting things to be OK. Everybody else kind of said, oh, it could be OK. It's it's a bold call, particularly uh, as automotive brands are often some of the biggest advertisers for outdoor media in particular. And we've just found out that the Holden brand is disappearing. So... I asked Brendan about that as well. You know, are you concerned that Holden's going to exit the market and therefore any money that they might have spent isn't going to exist anymore? And he said, look, he's always sad when any advertiser or brand disappears because it's going to have an, an impact no matter what you do. But he was confident that other advertisers are going to start to return and things might start to turn around. And he seemed confident that outdoor can start to take eyeballs from other media Well take dollars from other media uh, and sort of plug the hole that way. He is trying to find a new CEO though. So maybe he's like, it's outdoor guys. It's great. <laughs> uh, so not so great, I guess, was uh, Prime Media, which is a regional media business, posted a subdued result for the first half of the 2020 financial year with profits dropping 56.2%. The business is somewhat in limbo after Seven made a play for it towards the end of 2019, but the merge was ultimately blocked by Bruce Gordon and Anthony Catalano. 
media moguls who sort of had enough between them to object to the merger and stop it in its tracks at least for now. That was one of the more bizarre investor calls that I was on. So some of them go forever and ever and they have very prominent investor personalities asking really difficult questions and, you know, really drilling down into the numbers. This call went for eight minutes. So I was on the call from 9.01 till 9.09 on Wednesday morning. And the only people that asked questions were private investors. So, you know, mum and dad type person who owns some shares. They weren't the the big hitters. They weren't people from Goldman Sachs and whatnot. And, you know, their questions, they didn't actually get great answers from from Prime in response. It was very, they weren't very talkative. There wasn't a lot to say. And I just wonder if they they don't really know their future. So they don't really even know what they can talk about. I would imagine a prime investor call at the moment would be similar to if Pacific Magazines held an investor call, which obviously being part of Seven, they don't. Um, I think Prime were really open with how keen they were to be acquired by Seven. They announced that they that was what they thought was best for the company. That didn't happen. And I think now they're just kind of stuck in this place where they want to be taken under Seven's wing, but they can't get there. And obviously they're a regional media business, regional Australia not doing great at the moment. They did flag the bushfires in their results and said that's hit them pretty hard. I don't think they also haven't posted great results for a couple of reporting seasons at this point. So I think honestly, if you're working at Prime, you're just kind of doing your best to keep going until something happens. Yeah, I mean, I think the other the other um, reason they cited was Facebook and Google putting local advertising markets under pressure, which felt like you'd file under not new news. <laughs> um, and the other thing that I was the question for you, Viv did did anyone ask questions about costs? Because if you look at their um, their their revenue. Um, slide wasn't anywhere near as high as their profit slide. So it looks like they've got a cost issue. No, as I say, the the questions weren't super detailed and and neither were the answers. Uh, You know, you can't fit too much into four minutes of of questions. It's just uh, not a lot of scope, particularly when you factor in time for the operator to explain who everybody is. So look, there wasn't even enough for me to get a story from that Q&A. I think it's an interesting point you make about Facebook though because so many big media companies hit out at Facebook and Google for taking so much of the advertising dollar pie but most of Facebook's advertisers actually are really, really small businesses and that's what Facebook has been really good at doing, like attracting small cafes and fashion businesses and businesses that are run out of people's garages and telling them, you know, you can reach local people that you might not be able to reach if you actually saved enough money for an ad on Channel 9, we can target them directly. So I actually would imagine that that's hit prime pretty hard because all those terrible local ads you used to see when you go down. Incredible local ads. (laughs) When you go down the south coast with very funny jingles, they might not be doing that anymore because they'll just be putting those dollars to Facebook, which means, you know, maybe less jingles for the regional TV viewer. Oh, my mum lives up the coast and she gets this fantastic ad from a place called Mawillam Bar where an old man runs just like a – he's just got like a shop that has a bunch of weird stuff that he's collected and he does these ads where he speaks directly down the barrel of the camera and every time he's like, we could close down any day. <laughs> it's not going to close down. He's been there for like 60 years but they are glorious. Panic, get in now. We could close it <laughs> any moment. Now, lastly, Nine released its results with a 9% drop in profits and flagging $100 million savings to be found across the next three years. Now, Nine has sort of been the shining light of media owners in recent years with acquiring Fairfax and getting that deal through getting with that, you know, the likes of Macquarie Media and and Stan. And when other media companies were really struggling, it looked like Nine was doing really well, particularly when compared to Seven's debt levels and Seven's need to reduce costs. So, Hannah, this is still an okay result. Then it's not like they're, you know, in absolute trouble. It's just perhaps not as positive as they've had in the past. And it feels like Hugh Marks, Nine's CEO, was – 
a bit more open about the challenges that organisation is facing this time around, which might perhaps be why the headlines are a bit more negative. So what are the challenges that Nine is facing according to Hugh? Yeah, I spoke to um, some people just before Nine released its results and the line I was getting quite a lot was, if Nine can't post good results, nobody can. But you're right. Hugh Marks has been very open with some of the struggles. The biggest one that he flagged was a disappointing revenue despite Nine's really good ratings. We'll remember Nine won the ratings year last year. It was their best result since Oztam was invented 18 years ago. And Hugh kind of gave the sales team a bit of a a bit of a kick up the bum because he said, you know, I would have expected us to get far better numbers given how good our ratings are. And that's definitely something that we're going to be looking at going forward. And he did say by the end or by the next results in the middle of the year, he's expecting that rev share to be way higher, especially given Seven's had a fairly awkward start to the year. But it was just very interesting on the investor call, particularly he was quite candid about the problems that were being faced by the business, particularly on that sales side. Now, he did admit he'd put them, you know, he took some responsibility himself. He did admit, you know, I've put them in quite a difficult position. They've had to deal with the Fairfax merger. There's been all sorts of restructures and whatnot going on, but he made it pretty clear that he's expecting more. As you say, they won the audience share in terms of you know, the number of people watching the free-to-air networks, but that didn't translate into their revenue share being up there on par with their audience share. Martin, how would how would you feel? You've worked in a commercial role. How would you feel if you were sort of sent that messaging by Hugh Marks? <laughs> uh, well, I've never been in a sales role actually myself, but I've managed salespeople um, for a long time. And, um, yeah, look, I, I, I mean, I think – it's obviously as a as a media owner you in an ideal world you want your you want your audience share and your um, advertising share to line up but if i think about mumbrella if that was true we would get an awful lot more advertising than we already do um there are other factors at play you're not operating in a vacuum obviously there's there's you know the relationships that your competitors have got there's the products that your competitors have got there's pricing there's you know timing as well you know it it may be that you know that that kind of audience share lead that you describe you know might might you you would hope that that would have more of an impact in this round of negotiations rather than the last round of negotiations so there could be a lag Certainly, if I was the nine sales team, I'd definitely be focusing on growing share right now. And I'm sure Michael Stevenson and his team will be doing exactly that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, far be it for me to defend salespeople. But 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 I think the, the next six months are probably going to be key. Yeah. So when I spoke to Seven CEO, James Warburton, I, I sort of asked him a similar question where I said, you know, your ratings haven't been great, but comparatively their advertising revenue their share has been all right. And he sort of paid credit to Seven's Chief Revenue Officer, Kurt Burnett, and said, you know, they're not just selling ratings, they're selling environments, they're selling integrations, and perhaps the market has underestimated just how effective Kurt Burnett and his sales team are, given that, you know, Seven's taking an absolute hammering in the ratings, but it's still pulling in, according to James, like a pretty good revenue share. Yeah, and look, you don't always get the commercial, you know, benefit you deserve. Um, that's just reality. You know, I, it, it is why it's why clients can be so annoying because they make <laughs> strange decisions. Um, so, yeah, as I say, I, I don't, it, it, there isn't a direct line between audience and, and advertising. If there was, you wouldn't really need salespeople. You'd need machines. So, so um, yeah, I, I, I think it'll be interesting to watch over the next three to six months for sure. Another one of the sales teams that got a bit of a boot from Hugh was the Sydney sales team at the formerly Macquarie Media business. So during the presentation, it was revealed that Nine Radio, which is what Macquarie Media is now known as, dropped 16% in its revenue. Um, In the investor call, Hugh said that was due to Macquarie Media specific issues. When I pushed him a bit further in our chat afterwards, he said... There's no secret there's been an issue in breakfast in Sydney. That's something that hasn't as yet been rectified and that's a focus for the business. In that comment, he's referring specifically to Alan Jones, who said some fairly controversial comments on air last year and resulted in an advertiser boycott. At the AGM at the end of last year, Hugh did say that that had hurt 
nine's revenue. Didn't say how much, but we've kind of got a bit more colour on that now. He then went on though to say, more generally, there have been some Sydney specific sales issues that we're very focused on. We're very focused on lifting Sydney's sales performance. Melbourne's been very strong. The other markets are very strong. So it really is a Sydney specific issue. That to me is just such a red flag if you're working in the sales team in Sydney in Nine Radio. Or is the Sydney specific issue Alan Jones? Like, is that <laughs> but what But if he's it saying? is Alan Jones, then surely they would have gotten rid of him by now. Like, if you're, he's been on content review since those comments in which he said that Scott Morrison should have been briefed to shove a sock down the throat of New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. If that was really, if, Hugh and Tom Malone, who is the boss at Nine Radio, thought that the business couldn't recover from Alan Jones's comments. I think they would have made a move by now, especially because as we saw towards the end of last year, they weren't exactly precious about changing talent over. I can't imagine that getting rid of Alan Jones would be an easy task. So it's not. (laughs) (laughs) You need a really big shoehorn to get him out of the office. And then as well, there seem to be some signals that one-off sporting events might not have long to live on Channel 9. Yeah, so that $100 million that you referenced at the beginning that needs to be found across the next three years, that's going to come from three places. One-off sporting events are going to go, international content is going to be cut back and also Nine's looking at some synergies as it moves into its new North Sydney offices. Um, one-off sporting events struck me as quite interesting because when we spoke with CEO of Seven, James Warburton, he said the same thing. And I kind of pushed Hugh to tell us a bit more about that. And he said the issue with one-off events, for example, the Ashes, which Nine had last year, is that advertisers don't usually build them into their plan. It's not like the Olympics where you know it's coming every four years. You're either an Olympics brand or you're not. He said, usually if people are putting money into these one-off events, they're taking it from somewhere else in the slate. So as far as he's concerned for the money that you need to spend to broadcast these big events, you're not getting that return. And I think as we see tougher markets for these businesses going forward, these one-off events just aren't going to be worthwhile for them. Next up, WPPAUNZ significantly changes its operating model. WPPAUNZ has announced it will introduce a new leadership model under new CEO Jens Monsees with campuses in many of Australia's major cities. The new strategy was released with the holding company's results, which saw net sales drop 2.6% and earnings before interest and tax fall 8.7%. The new strategy will be rolled out across three years and we'll see WPPAUNZ significantly change its operating model. One thing that was interesting was in a call explaining the new strategy to investors in the media, Jens was talking about how a new operating model with a focus on digital doesn't necessarily mean a whole bunch of redundancies. He was asked, you know, if you do find that you're carrying all these people without the digital skills, does that just mean they're on the chopping block? And he was pretty adamant that, no, that's not what it means. It means we'll invest in training them and we'll invest in making sure they have the right skills for this digital future. But then when we ran that story about Yen saying it doesn't mean redundancies, there were lots of clearly disgruntled people who felt that, well, actually there have been lots of redundancies at WPP, so I'm not sure it's fair to say there won't be any. Yeah, and I think maybe he was speaking to a specific part of the business and not the wider business. Um, I think in the wider business perhaps we will see some redundancies, especially because he said in that new model uh, he's going to try and bring together the Australian agencies, that's media agencies including you know, holding group Group M, PR agencies like Ogilvy and OPR, and creative agencies like VMLY and R. Um, he's going to try and bring them all together as a fleet, as he said, and try and get them all on the same operating line, especially in some of those smaller markets and some of those more remote markets. I think to me, whenever you try to bring something together or whenever you use words like fleet or, you know, same reporting line, to me that means you're going to lose some people. 
It does say as well that all of those agencies, when they come come together on these campuses in some of Australia's cities, they will be accountable for each other's performance, incentivizing them to work closer together, which sounds a little bit Hunger Games to me. You know, <laughs> everybody's going to be keeping an eye on each other and everybody's going to be motivating each other to, to be to be better. I totally understand the theory behind it because it does say, Jens did say, in the past our Australian brands were operating independently from each other and just incentivised by their own P&L, not operating as a fleet. We have multiple IT systems and processes. In the past we did things differently. So that is going to be challenging though. I mean, Martin, we've only just brought two relatively small businesses together and we've got so many different operating systems and so many different ways of communicating and organising documents and and that has presented some challenges, let alone if you're bringing together a company the size and scale of WPP and trying to get everyone working the same. At the risk of um, being superficial, um, to me it was was more important for, for him to say something and to demonstrate a strategic direction and the detail was was maybe secondary to that. You know, you're talking about a, a business that's that's been, you know, in a bit of a holding pattern for some time. Um, so if the object of the exercise was to show some kind of, you know, positive movement, some energy, that he's going to make a difference, then I thought he ticked that box really. And and whether it works or not, well, we'll find out. But But it was more important to kind of set a bit of a strategy. And I thought he did that. Well, the 2020 transform deliverables that he said were the operating model, which was to reinvent our operating model and establish the centre of excellence for AI, data and technology. Client first, which involves establishing top client leads and sector practice areas. Talent, which is rolling out a new leadership model and establishing new KPIs and REM framework. Platform, which involves beginning to centralise our services with one CRM system, one HR system and one finance system. Solutions, which was start to build an end-to-end tech stack and invest in partnerships with tech platforms and seek growth opportunities through attractive strategic M&A. And finally, geographies, which was establish a campus in Perth, Brisbane, Adelaide, Auckland and Wellington restructure New Zealand and explore growth opportunities in Southeast Asia. That's a big 2020. <laughs> He's certainly given himself a lot like, to do. <laughs> we had um, Wavemaker CEO Peter Vogel on the podcast last week and he did speak, I think he left us to then go and meet up with Jens on his tour around Australia, which he was doing. And he did speak to some of this. He spoke to some of this kind of restructuring, this reorganizing. But I think especially when you look at some of these creative agencies that have kind of been created out of a bunch of smaller agencies, which have been shoved together, as you said in there, like even just trying to align their HR systems and stuff, it must be a complete nightmare because as you said, we're just two, we've just a company that's gone into another company and we've already got about a million double ups of every system. They must just have like it for every agency that's come from four different agencies, that's four different operating systems, four different plans for everything. Poor old Jens. Yeah, poor, <laughs> poor, poor old Jens. Up next, Think TV and News Media Works merge to form the Premium Content Alliance. Industry bodies Think TV and News Media Works will merge later this year to form the Premium Content Alliance. The new industry body will be headed up by current Think TV CEO Kim Portrait with Michael Miller, the executive chairman of News Corp, as the inaugural chair. Viv, you covered this one. What can you tell us about the Premium Content Alliance? Well, there's there's a few things to unpack there. So when I first got the heads up about the Premium Content Alliance, I looked at who was involved and thought that there were a few key people missing. You know, the likes of The Guardian, which would market itself as premium content, isn't in there. And there's no radio businesses in there beyond obviously Nine Radio because Nine's involved. It was then sort of made clear to me that it was indeed the merger of Think TV and News Media Works rather than some new 
Alliance and the existing shareholders of Think TV are Seven, Nine, Ten, Foxtel and Foxtel Media and then the shareholders of News Media Works are Seven West Media, Nine and News Corp, I think. So it was just those organisations coming together rather than, you know, all content providers in Australia getting together. I did ask Kim whether, you know, given that they're calling themselves a premium content alliance, should they try and get radio involved? Should they try and get other media players involved? And she was very clear that, look, that's something they might look at down the track. They do consider radio to be premium content, but this was about bringing together Think TV and News Media Works. I always think it's interesting when these things launch and they launch and then they say a lot of, well, yes, but this is just now, you know, down the tra- down the track we're going to do this and down the track we're going to do this. Um, I think also what was quite interesting was that some of the staffers from both businesses may not be coming across to the final new business. Well, look, Kim was very clear that this wasn't a rationalisation exercise. She said this is about making life easier for marketers and better for marketers and help them better understand the options that are on the table when it comes to aligning their brand with premium content. She was saying that by having these organisations work together, they can do deeper research studies, they can present better facts to marketers, but you don't bring organisations like this that have crossovers together and have everybody survive. It's just not what's going to happen. So Peter Miller, who is the current CEO of News Media Works, is coming across in sort of a strategic advisory role. But when I asked about some specific other staff who I won't name because I'm sure they're still working through some sensitive HR issues, I was sort of given the line that, you know, they're going to try and give people a job and staff at Think TV and News Media Works definitely sort of get first run at interviewing for those jobs and potentially getting them. But if it turns out that the candidate pool externally will serve the organisation better, then they will look beyond those existing staffing structures because it is it is a new organisation and, you know, Kim has previously for the past three years had the job of spruiking television to marketers and agencies as the platform for mass reach and the platform for effective reach and, and as the most brand safe environment and all of those things. She's now got to sort of be like, oh, but also newspapers and premium digital publishers are also great. So it's it's not an easy job when you've spent so long saying one platform's better than all the rest and now you've got to say, oh, actually, they're all they're all great. Please, please give us all of your money. Yeah, I mean, I, my thought on that is the the research angle is the is probably the strength of the opportunity here. I think about the MPA when you know the MPA was trying to represent the the three big magazine consumer magazine publishers in Australia, and you know marketing you know in and of itself isn't enough. You need to have a a, a story that you know has facts behind it. So so I think the the emphasis on research is a good one. And I just had to smile when you were saying you know. About five minutes ago, we were talking about how WPP had taken on an awful lot in one year, and there was a hell of a lot to get done, and uh, and all of that. And and now we're saying, well, why didn't they try and why didn't um, you know <laughs> Premium Content Alliance try and bring in the Guardian and various <laughs> other people? You know, why are they just concentrating on doing the first step? So you know, there's no, I don't think you can win with this stuff, really. I mean, it it, it seems that to make sense to to get the body bedded down. And then try and um, you know become a bit more wide, wide uh, ranging, and and encompass some more people would would seem sensible to me, given what we just said about trying to do a lot of things all at once. <laughs> trying to do too much too quickly. Uh, the other thing that a lot of people noticed was the makeup of the inaugural board of the Premium Content. Alliance. So that's Patrick Delaney, the CEO of Foxtel Group, Paul Anderson, the CEO of Network 10, Rod Prosser, the Chief Sales Officer of Network 10, Michael Miller, the Executive Chairman of News Corp, Damien Eels, the Chief Operating Officer of News Corp Australia for Publishing, Hugh Marks, the CEO of Nine, Michael Stevenson, the Chief Sales Officer of Nine, James Warburton, the CEO of Seven West Media, and Kurt Burnett, the Chief Revenue Officer of Seven West Media. Yeah, that's, a, that's a lot of men. Oh, men on that list. <laughs> yeah, that is, in fact, 100% men on that list. Uh, that obviously hasn't escaped 
the attention of a lot of people. I did ask Kim about that and if they should have done more to have more women on that board. Now, obviously, Kim nor Michael nor anybody can sort of immediately control the fact that all of these media organisations happen to have male CEOs and male sort of chief sales officers. So, you know, Kim was Kim's point was sort of, look, they, these are the board members of these existing organisations, these are the people at the top and we need to focus on having the best people for the job and just getting on with business. I think the pushback to that is that to reach equality uh, and to to get more female participation, you can't wait for there to be five female CEOs. Somebody actually has to take a step back. You know, somebody has to say, oh, I'm not actually going to be on that board. Like, you know, I'll still be the CEO. I'm not saying these men, <laughs> these men should resign. But but the point that's been made by by some people who I know are upset by this is somebody should have said, look, I'm not going to do this. Why don't we have a female up here instead? Especially because if you look at seven, their chief marketing officer, Charlotte Valente, a woman. If you look at 10, their chief content officer, Beverly Mugabe, a woman. So it wouldn't have been hard. They wouldn't have had to dig deep down into their organization. They could have just sidestepped all the sales guys and put up a marketing person. My main concern here. And I was discussing this with somebody um, who I went out on the podcast the other day and they said, oh, I just don't understand because so many media companies are getting really good nowadays at having like good representation. And so it just feels like it would have been really easy to put forward some women. And that's kind of my concern. My concern is that if it did occur to these people that maybe they should have some women in there, then they somehow push that to the side. And if it didn't, occur to them, that's even more concerning. They've got three sort of subcommittees. So they've then got a separate Think TV board, which is also all men. Think News Brands, which is sort of the rebranded news media works, which is also all men. And then Think Premium Digital, which is sort of spruiking the benefits of online premium content. And that has one female committee member, Sophie Hicks-Lloyd, the digital sales director at 10. So I just think the blowback is, you know, nobody has anything specifically against these men who are at the pinnacle of their careers. It's just that it's an incredibly overwhelming list to look at. And it it does give – it's an easy thing for people to criticise the organisation for. Yeah, that was the point I was going to make. As a as the only white, um, you know, privileged male on this podcast, <laughs> I, I hesitate to throw my hand to the ring for this one. But um, but yeah, I I kind of I agree that it was it was more about the optics, and it's a bit of a shame. I mean, I mean, it's an important issue. Don't get me wrong, but I think it's it's a shame that what is fundamentally a good idea, which I think under under Kim portrait will will do some good things has been kind of derailed a little bit by this important um issue that people have flagged so it it, it just wasn't great PR I think as much as anything else no and that's what I was kind of saying the other day when I was speaking to someone about this I was just saying you've given yourself an opening you've given the premium content alliance has given a little niche for Viv when she's interviewing them to leap straight in there and say, why are there no women on this board? And you don't need that when you're starting something. You don't need to give journalists like Mumbrella a chance to come in and tear your organization apart. There are people are going to find plenty of other flaws if they want to. You don't need to give them that opening. And I just think even if organizations aren't concerned about the lack of gender representation, which they should be, but even if they're not, they should just be thinking about this sort of stuff because it's like any time we put an event on, sometimes you've got to really work to make sure that you don't have an all-male panel or that you don't have you know, an event where it's a bunch of male key speakers, but you do it because you know, A, it's important, but you also know if you didn't do it, you can only imagine the feedback we'd get. I, th- I think the other thing I'd say is that um, you know if you're bringing two organisations together, you know going forward, you want to get some new voices on on those committees and on those panels anyway, because otherwise you're just going to end up with the kind of same result that you've always had. So it feels like if you're building something new, you need some new voices around the table anyway. So I I, I think that that will happen in time. I'm sure it will. 
But as you say, I think it, it, it ended up becoming the focus of the conversation and I don't think they would have would have wanted that. It's worth noting that it becoming the focus of the conversation wasn't just my feminist agenda. I actually hadn't even gotten around to, to publishing the full Q&A yet when people were already jumping into the news story saying, you know, Vivian, why didn't you ask about this? Vivian, what's going on with this? And, and pointing out that it made the organisation look sort of Pre, prehistoric. And Do you know, it's funny you should say that. I think there was a story last week that, that Brittany wrote um, where we'd flagged um, that there was an all-male panel um, or an, an all-male committee or an all-male board. And um, I just think people people work that out for themselves these days and, 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 and jump on it. It's kind of, it almost has become such a no-no that, that it's surprising that, that, that it still happens really. Yeah. yeah, that was the Independent Media Agencies That's right. Alliance. Yes, yes which yet, was all men. Which was all men. Um, some of the agencies involved are led by a woman, but it was still all men. Um, and I should point out, Brittany is doing a follow-up feature in which she will interview some women. But it's one of the only times that I'm ever proud of the Mumbrella commenters. They can bring some truly negative debates to the table. But what they have started being really good at is leaping on when there's a lack of gender diversity. So kudos to them. Yes, they're almost doing doing the feminist agenda for me. I can, <laughs> I can take a step Nobody's back. Nobody's doing that for you. Hey, I, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, though. The, the one thing I would say is I remember, you'll remember this too, Viv, that um, a couple of years ago when we did the Next Awards and the, and the State of the Industry, Industry Research and you presented that research, it was about a 30-minute presentation. We then had a panel with Kim Portrait on it and, and, some, and Pete Horgan and some others, and, and, it, and it happened to be that there were three men on the panel and two women, um, including yourself, and 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 somebody took a photo of the panel and cropped kind of me out and cropped you out and made a comment about gender diversity and and you know you think well there was always going to be it was going to be three and two one way or the other as it happened if you think about the amount of stage time you know you 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 led that conversation you did it very well um, and um, you know there there, there were female voices were were probably 70 or 80 percent of that session yeah, that that was a bit of a stitch up in that yeah. you know I was on stage solo uh, for 30 minutes had driven that research project presented that research project and was then unfortunately cropped out of the photo to make it look like we only had 25 percent female representation when actually that's a really good example there of men taking a step back. So the next awards jury, which coincided with Mumbrella's 10th birthday in 2018, we got together 100 of the industry's most senior and respected people, but I wanted it to be 50-50 gender balance. Now, that's an interesting challenge because at the very, very top of Australia's media marketing and advertising ladder is not 50% female, which means again, some men have to take a step back and women whose job title might not be equal get to sort of take a step up and join that jury. And there was some really interesting pushback where people would go, well, a male with that job title can't be on your, can't be on your jury. That's not fair. But there's already so many male CEOs that if I genuinely only went to the top, it probably would have been 80-20. And I had to make a point that these women aren't not at the top because they're incapable. There's perhaps structural things which have held them back. So we need to open the door for them and that does mean that some men who perhaps in the past have more easily walked through the door, you know, don't don't get a seat at that particular table. Yeah, and, and I mean the same thing happened with all women's shortlists for, for you know, um, parliamentary seats and those sorts of things until that happened or when that happened, you know, there was a lot of bleating about, you know, well, that's not fair because, you know, they're, they're, they're there could be, you know, capable men, but but that's not the issue. It was only by doing that that, you know, I think about the UK now, the only way we got to, you know, almost 50-50 representation was was through being proactive and doing something, something about it. I guess the point I was making before was, you know, we have a policy of, of making sure that there's gender balance on all of our um, programmes and all of our panels for all of our events. And even then... If it's two and three, someone will crop somebody out and, and, and try and have a pop at us. We can get upset about that and say how unfair and what stitch up it was, which it was. But the point is, you know, if you then go out and say, 
here's a here's a panel or here's a board and it's 100% male you can absolutely guarantee in this day and age you're going to get some blowback definitely on the on the umbrella comment thread so <laughs> so as i say i i think i think they'll do something about it i think it was a bit of a shame that it, it kind of derailed what what feels like a a, a sensible move i think i think you know that those bodies have to consolidate and it kind of made sense so before we go, it is worth just giving a plug to the thing that Martin said was one of the best decisions in his 11-year tenure with Mumbrella as CEO and co-founder, and that's Mumbrella 360 on the 2nd till the 4th of June at the Hilton Hotel in Sydney. There's six content streams, a lineup of international speakers, one-on-one networking and perhaps most important of all it's still in the early bird rate where I think you can save something like $600 if you get your ticket now. Martin you won't be our fearless leader on the 2nd till the 4th of June but will we see you at Mumbrella 360? Well I should point out there's six content streams per day just just to be clear about (laughs) that. Um, uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll be at the networking event. Obviously, I've got oh. I've got business to do. <laughs> picking, picking up, absolutely. Clients. I mean, seriously, twelve appointments in three hours. It's a steal, <laughs> listeners. Will you be uh, getting your early bird ticket, or are you expecting that we throw a freebie your way? I've, I've, no comment. <laughs> All right, well, that is it for this week. So thank you very much to Mumbrella's co-founder and CEO, Martin Lane, for joining us. Pleasure. And Hannah, our senior media reporter, thank you for joining us as well. Thanks. Thanks.